please join me in reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. No objection. The Journal of Proceedings of the Trial are approved to date. The Deputy Sergeant-at-Arms will make the proclamation. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silence on pain of imprisonment while the Senate of the United States is sitting for the trials of the Articles of Impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. Chief Justice. The Majority Leader is recognized. My colleagues, today the Senate will hear up to four hours of closing statements by the two sides. We'll take a 30-minute lunch break after the House has made its initial presentation. Then we'll come back and finish this afternoon. Pursuant to the provisions of Senate Resolution 488, the Senate has provided for up to four hours of closing arguments equally divided between the managers on the part of the House of Representatives and, counsel, and the counsel for the President. Pursuant to Rule 22 of the Rules of Procedure and Practice in the Senate when sitting on impeachment trials, the argument shall be opened and closed on the part of the House of Representatives. The presiding officer recognizes Mr. Manager Schiff to begin the presentation on the part of the House of Representatives. Mr. Chief Justice, members of the U.S. Senate, counsel for the President. Almost 170 years ago, Senator Daniel Webster of Massachusetts took to the well of the old Senate chamber, not far from where I'm standing. He delivered what would become perhaps his most famous address, the 7th of March speech. Webster sought to rally his colleagues to adopt the Compromise of 1850, a package of legislation that he and others hoped would forestall a civil war brewing over the question of slavery. He said, it is fortunate that there is a Senate of the United States, a body not yet moved from its propriety, not lost to a just sense of its own dignity and its own high responsibilities, and a body to which the country looks with confidence for wise, moderate, patriotic, and healing counsels. It is not to be denied that we live in the midst of strong agitations and are surrounded by very considerable dangers to our institutions of government. The imprisoned winds are let loose, but I have a duty to perform and I mean to perform it with fidelity, not without a sense of surrounding dangers, but not without hope. Webster was wrong to believe that the Compromise of 1850 could prevent succession of the South, but I hope he was not wrong to put his faith in the Senate because the design of the Constitution and the intention of the framers was that the Senate would be a chamber removed from the sway of temporary political winds. In Federalist 65, Hamilton wrote, quote, where else than in the Senate could have been found a tribunal sufficiently dignified or sufficiently independent? What other body would be likely to feel confidence enough in its own situation to preserve unawed and uninfluenced the necessary impartiality between an individual accused 
and the representatives of the people, his accusers. In the same essay, Hamilton explained this about impeachment. The subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. They are of a nature which may, with peculiar, peculiar propriety, be dominated political, as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. The prosecution of them, for this reason, will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community and to divide it into parties more or less friendly or inimical to the accused. In such cases, there will always be the greatest danger that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt. Daniel Webster and Alexander Hamilton placed their hopes in you, the Senate, to be the court of greatest impartiality, to be a neutral representative of the people in determining, uninfluenced by party or pre-existing faction, the innocence or guilt of the President of the United States. Today, you have a duty to perform with fidelity, not without a sense of surrounding dangers, but also not without hope. I submit to you on behalf of the House of Representatives that your duty demands that you convict President Trump. Now, I don't pretend that this is an easy process. It's not designed to be easy. It shouldn't be easy to impeach or convict a president. Impeachment is an extraordinary remedy, a tool only to be used in rare instances of grave misconduct. But it is in the Constitution for a reason. In America, no one is above the law, even those elected president of the United States. And I would say, especially those elected president of the United States. You've heard arguments from the president's counsel that impeachment would overturn the results of the 2016 election. You have heard that in seeking the removal and disqualification of the president, the House is seeking to interfere in the next election. Senators, neither is true. And these arguments demonstrate a deeply misguided or, I think, intentional effort to mislead about the role that impeachment plays in our democracy. If you believe, as we do, and as we have proven, that the President's efforts to use his official powers to cheat in the 2020 election jeopardize our national security and are antithetical to our democratic tradition, then you must come to no other conclusion that the President threatens the fairness of the next election and risks putting foreign interference between the voters and their ballots. Professor Dershowitz and the other counselors to the president have argued that if the president thinks that something is in his interest, then it is by definition in the interest of the American people. We have said throughout this process that we cannot and should not leave our common sense at the door. The logical conclusion this argument is, is that the president is the state, that his interests are the nation's interests, that his will is necessarily ours. You and I and the American people know otherwise. And we do not have to be constitutional scholars to understand that this is a position deeply at odds with our Constitution and our democracy. That believing in this argument or allowing the president to get away with misconduct based on this extreme, extreme view would render him above the law. But we know that this cannot be true. What you decide on these articles will have lasting implications for the future of the presidency, 
not only for this president, but for all future presidents. Whether or not the office of the presidency of the United States of America is above the law, that is the question. As Alexis de Tocqueville wrote in his 1835 work, Democracy in America, quote, the greatness of America lies not in being made more enlightened than any other nation, but rather in her ability to repair her faults. In May of 1974, Barry Goldwater and other Republican congressional leaders went to the White House to tell President Nixon that it was time for him to resign and that they could no longer hold back the tide of impeachment over Watergate. Now, contrary to popular belief, the Republican Party did not abandon Nixon as the Watergate scandal came to light. It took years of disclosures and crisis and court battles. The party stood with Nixon through Watergate because he was a popular conservative president and his base was with him. So they were too. But ultimately, as Goldwater would tell Nixon, quote, there are only so many lies you can take and now there have been one too many. The president would have us believe that he did not withhold aid to course these sham investigations. That his July 25th call with the Ukrainians was perfect. That his meeting with President Zelensky on the sidelines of the UN is no different than a head of state meeting in the Oval Office. That his only interest in having Ukraine announce investigations into the Bidens was an altruistic concern over corruption. That the Ukrainians interfered in our 2016 election, not Russia. That Putin knows better than our own intelligence agencies. How many falsehoods can we take? When will it be one too many? Let us take a few minutes to remind you one last time of the facts of the president's misconduct as you consider how you'll vote on this important matter for our nation. Those facts compel the president's conviction on the two articles of impeachment. Mr. Chief Justice and Senators, over the past two weeks, the House has presented to you overwhelming and unconverted evidence that President Trump has committed grave abuses of power that harmed our national security and were intended to defraud our elections. President Trump abused the extraordinary powers he alone holds as President of the United States to coerce an ally to interfere in our upcoming presidential election for the benefit of his own re-election. He then used those unique powers to wage an unprecedented campaign to obstruct Congress and cover up his wrongdoing. As the president's scheme to corrupt our election progressed over several months, it became, as one witness described, more insidious. The president and his agents wielded the powers of the presidency and the full weight of the U.S. government to increase pressure on Ukraine's new president to coerce him to announce two sham investigations that would smear his potential election opponent and raise his political standing. By early September of last year, the president's pressure campaign appeared on the verge of succeeding until that is the president got caught and the scheme was exposed. 
In response, President Trump ordered a massive cover-up, unprecedented in American history. He tried to conceal the facts from Congress, using every tool and legal window dressing he could to block evidence and muzzle witnesses. He tried to prevent the public from learning how he placed himself above country. And yet, even as President Trump has orchestrated this cover-up and obstructed Congress's impeachment inquiry, he remains unapologetic, unrestrained, and intent on continuing his sham to defraud our elections. As I stand here today, delivering the House's closing argument, President Trump's constitutional crimes, his crimes against the American people and the nation, remain in progress. As you make your final determination on the President's guilt, it is therefore worth revisiting the tot totality of the President's misconduct. Doing so lays bare the ongoing threat President Trump poses to our democratic system of government, both to our upcoming election that some suggest should be the arbiter of the President's misconduct and to the Constitution itself that we all swore to support and defend. Donald Trump was the central player in the corrupt scheme assisted principally by his private attorney, Rudy Giuliani. Early in 2019, Giuliani conspired with two corrupt former Ukrainian prosecutors to fabricate and promote phony investigations of wrongdoing by former Vice President Joe Biden, as well as the Russian propaganda that it was Ukraine, not Russia, that hacked the DNC in 2016. In the course of their presentation to you, the President's counsel have made several remarkable admissions that affirm core elements of this scheme, including specifically about Giuliani's role and representation of the President. The President's counsel has conceded that Giuliani sought to convince Ukraine to investigate the Bidens and alleged Ukraine election interference on behalf of his client, the President, and that the President's focus on these sham investigations was significantly informed by Giuliani, whose views the President adopted. Compounding this damning admission, the President's counsel has also conceded that Giuliani was not conducting foreign policy on behalf of the President. They have confirmed that in pursuit, pursuing these two investigations, Giuliani was working solely in the President's private personal interest. And the President's personal interest is now clear to cheat in the next election. As Giuliani would later admit for the president's scheme to succeed, he first needed to remove the American ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, an anti-corruption champion Giuliani viewed as an obstacle who, when I quote, was, getting, was going to make the investigations difficult for everybody. Working with now indicted associates, Lev Parnas, and Igor Fruman, Giuliana orchestrated a bogus, months-long smear campaign 
against the ambassador that culminated in her removal in April. The president's sudden order to remove our ambassador came just three days after Ukraine's presidential election in late April, which saw a reformer, Volodymyr Zelensky, swept into office on an anti-corruption platform. President Trump called to congratulate Zelensky right after his victory. He invited President Zelensky to the White House and agreed to send Vice President Pence to his inauguration. But three weeks later, after Rudy Giuliani was denied a meeting with President Zelensky, President Trump abruptly, abruptly ordered Vice President Pence to cancel his trip. Instead, a lower-level delegation led by three of President Trump's political appointees, Secretary of Energy Rick Perry, Ambassador to the European Union Gordon Sondland, and Special Representative for Ukraine Negotiations Kurt Volker, attended Zelensky's inauguration the following week. These three returned from Ukraine impressed with President Zelensky. In a meeting shortly thereafter with President Trump in the Oval Office, they relayed their positive impression of the new Ukrainian president and encouraged President Trump to schedule the White House meeting he promised in his first call. But President Trump reacted negatively. He railed that Ukraine tried to take me down in 2016. And in order to schedule a White House visit, for President Zelensky, President Trump told the delegation that they would have to, and I quote, talk to Rudy. It is worth pausing here to consider the importance of this meeting in late May. This is the moment that President Trump successfully hijacked the tools of our government to serve his corrupt personal interests. When the president's domestic political errand as one witness famously described it, began to overtake and subordinate U.S. foreign policy and national security interests. By this point in the scheme, Rudy Giuliani was advocating very publicly for Ukraine to pursue the two sham investigations. But his request to meet with President Zelensky was rebuffed by the new Ukrainian president. According to reports about Ambassador Bolton's account, soon to be available, if not to this body, then to bookstores near you. The president also unsuccessfully tried to get Bolton to call the new Ukrainian president to ensure he would meet with Giuliani. The desire for Ukraine to announce these phony investigations was for a clear and corrupt reason because President Trump wanted to politically benefit, wanted the political benefit of a foreign country announcing that it would investigate his rival. Th that is how we know, without a doubt, that the object of the president's scheme was to benefit his re-election campaign. In other words, to cheat in the next election. Ukraine resisted announcing the investigations throughout June, so the president and his agent, Rudy Giuliani, turned up the pressure, this time by yielding the power of the United States government. 
In mid-June, the Department of Defense publicly announced that it would be releasing 250 million of military assistance to Ukraine. Almost immediately after seeing this, the President quietly ordered a freeze on the assistance to Ukraine. None of the 17 witnesses in our investigation were provided with a credible reason for the whole when it was implemented, and all relevant agencies opposed the freeze. In July, Giuliani and the President's opponents, appointees made clear to Ukraine that a meeting at the White House would only be scheduled if Ukraine announced the sham investigations. According to a July 19 email, the White House has tried to suppress this drug deal, as Ambassador Bolton called it, was well known among the President's most senior officials, including his Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney, and Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. And it was relayed directly to senior Ukrainian officials by Gordon Sondland on July 10 at the White House. Everyone was in the loop. Although President Zelensky explained that he did not want to be a pawn in Washington politics, President Trump did not care. In fact, on July 25, before President Trump spoke to President Zelensky, President Trump personally conveyed the terms of this quid pro quo to Gordon Sondland, who then relayed the message to Ukraine's president. Later that morning, during the now infamous phone call, President Trump explicitly requested that Ukraine investigate the Bidens and the 2016 election. Zelensky responded as President Trump instructed. He assured President Trump that he would undertake these investigations. After hearing this commitment, President Trump reiterated his invitation to the White House at the end of the call. Now, no later than a few days after the call, the highest levels of the Ukrainian government learned about the hold on military assistance. Senior Ukrainian officials decided to keep it quiet, recognizing the harm it would cause to Ukraine's defense, to the new government standing at home, and to its negotiating posture with Russia. Officials in Ukraine and the United States hoped that the hold would be reversed before it became public. As we now know, that was not to be. As we have explained during the trial, the president's scheme did not begin with the July 25th call, and it did not end there either. As instructed, a top aide to President Zelensky met with Giuliani in early August, and they began working on a press statement for Zelensky to issue that would announce the two sham investigations and lead to a White House meeting. Now, let's be very clear here. The documentary evidence alone, the text messages, the emails that we've showed you, confirms definitely the president's corrupt, uh, definitively, the president's corrupt quid pro quo for the White House meeting. Subsequent testimony further affirms that the president withheld this official act, this highly coveted Oval Office meeting, to apply pressure on Ukraine to do his personal bidding. The evidence is unequivocal. 
Despite this pressure, by mid-August, President Zelensky resisted such an explicit announcement of the two politically motivated investigations desired by President Trump. As a result, the White House meeting remained unscheduled, just as it remains unscheduled to this day. During this same time frame in August, the President persisted in maintaining the hold on the aid, despite warnings that he was breaking the law by doing so, as an independent watchdog recently confirmed that he did. According to the evidence presented to you, the President's entire cabinet believed he should release the aid because it was in the national security interests of our country. During the entire month of August, there was no internal review of the aid. Congress was not notified, nor was there any credible reason provided within the executive branch. With no explanation offered, and with the explicit, clear, yet unsuccessful quid pro quo for the White House meeting in the front of his mind, Ambassador Sondland testified that the only logical conclusion was that the President was also withholding military assistance to increase the pressure on Ukraine to announce the investigations. As Sondland and another witness testified, this conclusion was as simple as two plus two equals four. If the White House meeting wasn't sufficient leverage to extract the announcements he wanted, Trump would use the frozen aid as his hammer. Secretary Pompeo confirmed Sondland's conclusion in an August 22 email. It was also clear that Vice President Pence was aware of the quid pro quo over the aid and was directly informed of such in Warsaw on September 1, after the freeze had become public and Ukraine became desperate. Sondland pulled aside a top aide in Warsaw and told him that everything, both the White House meeting and also the security assistant, were conditioned on the announcement of the investigations that Sondland, Giuliani, and others had been negotiating with the same aide earlier in August. This is an important point. The President claims that Ukraine did not know of the freeze in aid, though we know this to be false. As the former Deputy Foreign Minister has admitted publicly, they found out about it within days of the July 25th call and kept it quiet. But no one can dispute that even after the whole became public on, July, on August 28th, President Trump's representatives continued their efforts to secure Ukraine's announcement of the investigations. This is enough to prove extortion in court. And it is certainly enough to prove it here. If that wasn't enough, however, on September 7, more than a week after the aid freeze became public, President Trump confirmed directly to Sondland that he wanted President Zelensky in a public box and that his release of the aid was conditioned on the announcement of the two sham investigations. Having received direct confirmation from President Trump, Sondland relayed the President's message 
to President Zelensky himself. President Zelensky could resist no longer. America's military assistant makes up 10% of his country's defense budget. And President Trump's visible lack of support for Ukraine harmed his leverage in negotiations with Russia. President Zelensky affirmed to Sondland on that same telephone call that he would announce the investigations in an interview on CNN. President Trump's pressure campaign appeared to have succeeded. Two days after President Zelensky confirmed his intention to meet President Trump's demands, the House of Representatives announced its investigation into these very issues. Shortly thereafter, the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community notified the intelligence communities that the whistleblower complaint was being improperly handled or with improperly withheld from Congress with the White House knowledge. In other words, the president got caught. And two days later, on September 11, the president released the aid. To this day, however, Ukraine still has not received all of the money Congress has appropriated, and the White House meeting has yet to be scheduled. The identity of the whistleblower, moreover, is irrelevant. The House did not rely on the whistleblower's complaint, even as it turned out to be remarkably accurate. It does not matter who initially sounded the alarm when they saw smoke. What matters is that the firefighters, Congress, were summoned and found the blaze. And we know that we did. The facts about the president's misconduct are not seriously in dispute, as several Republican senators have acknowledged publicly. We have proved that the president abused his power in precisely the manner charged in Article I. President Trump withheld a White House meeting and essential congressionally appropriated military assistance from Ukraine in order to pressure Ukraine to interfere in the upcoming presidential election on his behalf. The sham investigations President Trump wanted announced had no legitimate purpose and were not in the national interest. Despite the President's counsel's troubling reliance on conspiracy theories to claim the President acted in the public interest. The president was not focused on fighting corruption. In fact, he was trying to pressure Ukraine's president to act corruptly by announcing these baseless investigations. And the evidence makes clear that the president's decision to withhold Ukraine's military aid is not connected in any way to purported concerns about corruption or burden sharing. Rather, the evidence was presented to you, that was presented to you is damning, chilling, disturbing, and disgraceful. President Trump weaponized our government 
and the vast powers entrusted to him by the American people and the Constitution to target his political rival and corrupt our precious elections, subverted our national security and our democracy in the process. He put his personal interests over those of the country, and he violated his oath of office in the process. But the president's grave abuse of power did not end there. In conduct unparalleled in American history, once he got caught, President Trump engaged in categorical and indiscriminate obstruction of any investigation into his wrongdoing. He ordered every government agency and every official to defy the House's impeachment inquiry. And he did so for a simple reason, to conceal evidence of his wrongdoing from Congress and the American people. The president's obstruction was unlawful and unprecedented, but it also confirmed his guilt. Innocent people don't try to hide every document and witness, especially those that would clear them. That's what guilty people do. That's what guilty people do. Innocent people do everything they can to clear their name and provide evidence that shows that they are innocent. But it would be a mistake to view the president's obstruction narrowly as the president's counsel have tried to portray it. The president did not defy the House's impeachment inquiry as part of a routine interbranch dispute or because he wanted to protect the constitutional rights and privileges of his presidency. He did it consistent with his vow to fight all subpoenas. The second article of impeachment goes to the heart of our Constitution and our democratic system of government. The framers of the Constitution purposefully entrusted the power of impeachment in the legislative branch so that it may protect the American people from a corrupt president. The president was able to undertake such comprehensive obstruction only because of the exceptional powers entrusted to him by the American people. And he wielded that power to make sure Congress would not receive a single record or a single document related to his conduct and to bar his closest aides from testifying about his scheme. Throughout the House's inquiry, just as they did during the trial, the President's counsel offered bad faith and meritless legal arguments as transparent legal window dressing intended to legitimize and justify the President's efforts to hide evidence of his misconduct. We've explained why all of these legal excuses hold no merit, why the House's subpoenas were valid, how the House's, House appropriately exercised its impeachment authority, how the President's strategy was to stall and obstruct. 
We've explained how the president's after-the-fact reliance on unfounded and, in some cases, brand-new legal privileges are shockingly transparent cover for a president dictate a blanket obstruction. We've underscored how the president's defiance of Congress is unprecedented in the history of our republic. And we all know that an innocent person would eagerly provide testimony and documents to clear his name, as the president apparently thought he was doing mistakenly when he released the call records of his two telephone calls with President Zelensky. And even as the president has claimed to be protecting the presidency, remember that the president never actually invoked executive privilege throughout this entire inquiry, a revealing fact given the law's prohibition on invoking executive privilege to shield wrongdoing. And yet, according to the president's counsel, the president is justified in resisting the House's impeachment inquiry. They assert that the House should have taken the president to court to defy the obstruction. The president's argument is as shameless as it is hypocritical. The president's counsel is arguing in this trial that the House should have gone to court to enforce its subpoenas, while at the same time, the president's own Department of Justice is arguing in court that the House cannot enforce the subpoenas through the courts. And you know what remedy they say in court is available to the House? Impeachment for obstruction of Congress. This is not the first time this argument has been made. President Nixon made it too, but it was roundly rejected by the House Judiciary Committee 45 years ago. When the committee passed an article for obstruction of Congress for far less serious obstruction than we have here. The committee concluded that it was inappropriate to enforce its subpoenas in court. And as the slide shows, the committee concluded that it was inappropriate to seek the aid of the courts to enforce its subpoenas against the president. This conclusion is based on the constitutional provision vesting the power of impeachment solely in the House of Representatives and the express denial by the framers of the Constitution of any role for the courts in the impeachment process. Again, the committee report on Nixon's articles of impeachment. Once we strip the president's obstruction of this legal window dressing, the consequences are as clear as they are dire for our democracy. To condone the president's obstruction would strike a death blow to the impeachment clause in the Constitution. And if Congress cannot enforce this sole power vested in both chambers alone, 
The Constitution's final line of defense against a corrupt presidency will be eviscerated. A president who can obstruct and thwart the impeachment power becomes unaccountable. He or she is effectively above the law. And such a president is more likely to engage in corruption with impunity. This will become the new normal with this president and for future generations. So where does this leave us? As many of you in this chamber have publicly acknowledged in the past few days, the facts are not seriously in dispute. We have proved that the president committed grave offenses against the Constitution. The question that remains is whether that conduct warrants conviction and removal from office. Should the Senate simply accept or even condone such corrupt conduct by a president? Absent conviction and removal, how can we be assured that this president will not do it again? If we are to rely on the next election to judge the president's efforts to cheat in that election, how can we know that the election will be free and fair? How can we know that every vote will be free from foreign interference solicited by the president himself? With President Trump, the past is prolonged. This is neither the first time that the president solicited foreign interference in his own election, nor is it the first time that the president tried to obstruct an investigation into his misconduct. But you will determine, you will determine, you will determine whether it will be his last. As we speak, the president continues his wrongdoing unchecked and unashamed. Donald Trump hasn't stopped trying to pressure Ukraine to smear his opponent, nor has he stopped obstructing Congress. His political agent, Rudolph Giuliani, recently returned to the scene of the crime in Ukraine to manufacture more dirt for his client, the President of the United States. President Trump remains a clear and present danger to our national security and to our credibility around the world. He is decimating our global standing as a beacon of democracy while corrupting our free and fair elections here at home. What is a greater protection to our country than ensuring that we, the American people, alone, not some foreign power, choose our commander-in-chief? The American people alone should decide who represents us in any office without foreign interference, particularly the highest office in the land. And what could undermine our national security more than to withhold from a foreign ally fighting a hot war against our adversary? Hundreds of millions of dollars of military aid to buy sniper rifles, rocket-propelled grenade, 
launchers, radar and night vision goggles so that they may fight the war over there, keeping us safe here. If we allow the president's misconduct to stand, what message do we send? What message do we send to Russia, our adversary, intent on fracturing democracy around the world? What will we say to our European allies already concerned with this president about whether the United States will continue to support our NATO commitments that have been a pillar of our foreign policy since World War II? What message do we send to our allies in the free world? And if we allow the president's misconduct to stand, what will we say to the 68,000 men and women in uniform in Europe right now who courageously and admirably wake up every day ready and willing to fight for America's security and prosperity, for democracy in Europe and around the world? What message do we send them when we say America's national security is for sale? That cannot be the message we want to send to our Ukrainian friends or our European allies or to our children and our grandchildren who will inherit this precious republic. And I'm sure it is not the message that you wish to send to our adversaries. The late Senator John McCain was an astounding man, a man of great principle, a great patriot. He fought admirably in Vietnam and was imprisoned as a POW for over five years, refusing an offer by the North Vietnamese to be released early because his father was a prominent admiral. As you all are aware, Senator McCain was a great supporter of Ukraine, a great supporter of Europe, a great supporter of our troops. Senator McCain understood the importance of this body, this distinguished body, and serving the public, once saying, quote, glory belongs to the act of being constant to something greater than yourself, to a cause to your principles, to the people on whom you rely and who rely on you. The Ukrainians and the Europeans and the Americans around the world and here at home are watching what we do. They are watching to see what the Senate will do. And they are relying on this distinguished body to be constant to the principles America was founded on and which we've tried to uphold for more than 240 years. Doing the right thing and being constant to our principles requires a level of moral courage that is difficult 
but by no means impossible. It is that moral courage shown by public servants throughout this country and throughout the impeachment inquiry in the House. People like Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch, her decades of nonpartisan service were turned against her in a vicious smear campaign that reached all the way to the president. Despite this effort, she decided to honor a duly authorized congressional subpoena and to speak the truth to the American people. For this, she was the subject of yet more smears against her career and her character, even as she testified in a public hearing before Congress. Her courage mattered. People like Ambassador Bill Taylor, a West Point graduate who wears a bronze star and an air medal for valor, and his proudest honor, the Combat Infantryman's Badge. When his country called on him, he answered again and again and again in battle, in foreign affairs, and in the face of a corrupt effort by the president to extort a foreign country into helping his reelection campaign, an effort that Ambassador Taylor rightly believed was crazy. His courage mattered. People like Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who came to this country as a young child, fleeing authoritarianism in Europe. He could have done anything with his life, but he true chose public service, putting on a uniform and receiving a Purple Heart after being wounded in battle, fighting courageously in Iraq. When he heard that fateful July 25th call in which the president sold out our country for his own personal gain, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman reported it and later came before Congress to speak the truth about what happened. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's courage mattered. To the other public servants who came forward and told the truth, in the face of vicious smears, intimidation, and White House efforts to silence you, your courage mattered. You did the right thing. You did your duty. No matter what happens today or from this day forward, that courage mattered. Whatever the outcome in this trial, we will remain vigilant in the House. I know there are dedicated public servants who know the difference between right and wrong. But make no mistake, these are perilous times. If we determine that the remedy for a president who cheats in an election is to pronounce him vindicated and attack those who exposed his misconduct.
Senators, before we break, I want to take a moment to say something about the staff who have worked tirelessly on the impeachment inquiry and this trial for months now. There is a small army of public servants down the hall from this chamber, in offices throughout the House, and yes, in that windowless bunker in the Capitol, who have committed their lives to this effort because they, like the managers and the American people, believe that a president free of accountability is a danger to the beating heart of our democracy. I'm grateful to all of them, but let me mention a few. Daniel Goldman, Maher Batar, Rianne Workla, Patrick Boland, William Evans, Patrick Fallon, Sean Misko, Nicholas Mitchell, Daniel Noble, Deanna Pilipenko, Emily Simons, Suzanne Grooms, Krista Boyd, Norm Eisen, Barry Burke, Joshua Matz, Doug Letter, Sarah Istel, Ashley Etienne, Terry McCullough, Dick Meltzer, and Wendy Parker. Some of those staff, including some singled out in this chamber, have been made to endure the most vicious false attacks to the point where they feel their lives have been put at risk. The attacks on them degrade our institution and all who serve in it. You have asked me why I hired certain of my staff, and I will tell you, because they're brilliant, hardworking, patriotic, and the best people for the job. And they deserve better than the attacks they have been forced to suffer. Members of the Senate, Mr. Chief Justice, I want to close this portion of our statement by reading you the words of our dear friend and former colleague in the House, the late Elijah Cummings, who said this on the day that the Speaker announced the beginning of the impeachment inquiry. As elected representatives, he said of the American people, we speak not only for those who are here with us now, but for generations yet unborn. Our voices today are messages to a future we may never see. When the history books are written about this tumultuous era, I want them to show that I was among those in the House of Representatives who stood up to lawlessness and tyranny. We, the managers, are not here representing ourselves alone or even just the House. Just as you are not here making a determination as the President's guilt or innocence for yourselves alone. Now, you and we represent the American people the ones at home and at work who are hoping that their country will remain what it has always believed it to be, a beacon of hope, of democracy, and of inspiration to those striving around the world to create their own more perfect unions, for those who are standing up to lawlessness and to tyranny. Donald Trump has betrayed his oath to protect and defend the Constitution, but it is not too late for us to honor ours to wield our power to defend our democracy. As President Abraham Lincoln said at the close of his Cooper Union Address on February 27, 1860, neither let us be slandered by, from our duty by false accusations against us, nor frightened from it by menaces of destruction to the government, nor of dungeons to ourselves. Let us have faith that right makes might, and in that faith, let us, to the end, dare to do our duty as we understand it. Today, we urge you, in the face of overwhelming evidence of the President's guilt, and knowing that if left in office, he will continue to seek foreign interference in the next election, to vote to convict on both articles of impeachment, and to remove from office Donald J. Trump, 
the 45th President of the United States. Mr. Chief Justice, we reserve the balance of our time. Majority, the Majority Leader is recognized. Mr. Chief Justice, colleagues will take a 30-minute break for lunch. Without objection, so ordered. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, Majority Leader McConnell, Democratic Leader Schumer, Senators. Thank you very much on behalf of all of us for your continued attention. Today we are going to complete our argument and finish our closing argument. We will complete that in a very efficient period of time. You, you understand the arguments that we've been making. And at the end of the day, the key conclusion, we believe the only conclusion based on the evidence and based on the articles of impeachment themselves and the Constitution, is that you must vote to acquit the President. At the end of the day, this is an effort to overturn the results of one election and to try to interfere in the coming election that begins today in Iowa. And we believe that the only proper result, if we're applying the golden rule of impeachment, if we're applying the rules of impeachment that were so eloquently stated by members of the Democratic Party the last time we were here, the only appropriate result here is to acquit the president and to leave it to the voters to choose their president. With that, I'll turn it over to Judge Ken Starr, and we'll move through a series of short presentations. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate, Majority Leader McConnell, Minority Leader Schumer, House impeachment managers, and their very able staff. As uh, World War I, the war to end all wars was drawing to a close, an American soldier sat down at a piano and composed a song. It was designed to be part of a musical review for his army camp out on Long Island, Suffolk County. The song was God Bless America. The composer, of course, was Irving Berlin, who came here at the age of five, son of immigrants who came to this country for freedom. As composers are wont to do, Berlin worked very carefully with the lyrics. The song needed to be pure. It needed to be above politics, above partisanship. He intended it to be a song for all America. But he intended it to be more than just a song. It was to be a prayer for the country. As your very distinguished chaplain, Admiral Barry Black, has done in his prayers on these long days that you've spent as judges in the high court of impeachment, we've been reminded of what our country is all about and that it stands for one nation under God. The nation is about freedom. And we hear the voice of Martin Luther King Jr. and his dream-filled speech about freedom, echoing the great passages inscribed on America's Temple of Justice, the Lincoln Memorial, which stood behind Dr. King as he spoke on that historic day. 
Dr. King is gone, felled by an assassin's bullet, but his words remain with us. And during his magnificent life, Dr. King spoke not only about freedom, freedom standing alone. He spoke frequently about freedom and justice. And in his speeches, he summed up regularly the words of a Unitarian abolitionist from the prior century, Theodore Parker, who referred to the moral arc of the universe, the long moral arc of the universe, points toward justice, freedom and justice. Freedom whose contours have been shaped over the centuries in the English-speaking world by what Justice Benjamin Cardozo called the authentic forms of justice through which the community expresses itself in law. Authentic, authenticity. And at the foundation of those authentic forms of justice is fundamental fairness. It's playing by the rules. It's why we don't allow deflated footballs or stealing signs from the field. Rules are rules. They are to be followed. And so I submit that a key question to be asked as you begin your deliberations, were the rules here faithfully followed? If not, if that is your judgment, then with all due respect, the prosecutors should not be rewarded just as federal prosecutors are not rewarded. You didn't follow the rules. You should have. As a young lawyer, I was blessed to work with one of the great trial lawyers of his time. And I asked him, Dit, what's your secret? He had just defended successfully a former United States senator who was charged with a serious offense, perjury, before a federal grand jury. His response was simple and forthright. His words could have come from prairie lawyer Abe Lincoln. I let the judge and the jury know that they can believe and trust every word that comes out of my mouth. I will not be proven wrong. And so here's a question as you begin your deliberations. Have the facts as presented to you as a court, as the high court of impeachment, proven trustworthy? Has there been full and fair disclosure in the course of these proceedings? Fundamental fairness. I recall these words from the podium last week a point would be made by one of the president's lawyers, and then this would follow. The house managers didn't tell you that. Why not? And again, the house managers didn't tell you that. Why not? At the Justice Department on the fifth floor of the Robert F. Kennedy building is this simple inscription. The United States wins its point when justice is done, its citizens in the courts. Not did we win, not did we convict, 
Rather, the moral question was justice done. Of course, as has been said frequently, the House of Representatives does, under our Constitution, enjoy the sole power of impeachment. No one has disputed that fact. They've got the power. But that doesn't mean that anything goes. It doesn't mean that the House cannot be called to account in the High Court of Impeachment for its actions in exercising that power. A question to be asked, are we to countenance violations of the rules and traditional procedures that have been followed scrupulously in prior impeachment proceedings? And the Judiciary Committee, the venerable Judiciary Committee of the House of Representatives, Compare and contrast the thoroughness of that committee in the age of Nixon, its thoroughness in the age of Clinton with all of its divisiveness within the committee in this proceeding. A question to be asked. Did the House Judiciary Committee rush to judgment in fashioning the articles of impeachment? Did it cath carefully gather the facts, assess the facts, before it concluded we need nothing more than the panel of very distinguished professors and the splendid presentations by both the majority council and the minority council. We asked them questions. The Republicans asked them questions. We heard their answers. We're ready to vote. We're ready to try this case in the High Court of Impeachment. What was being said in the sounds of silence was this. We don't have time to follow the rules. We won't even allow the House Judiciary Minority members who have been beseeching us time and again to have their day just one day to call their witnesses. Oh yes, that is expressly provided for in the rules. We'll break those rules. That's not liberty and justice for all. The great political scientist of yesteryear, Richard Neustadt of Columbia, observed that the power of the president is ultimately the power to persuade. Oh yes, the commander-in-chief, and yes, charged with the conduct and authority to guide the nation's foreign relations. But ultimately, it's the power to persuade. I suggest to you that so too, the House's sole power to impeach is likewise ultimately a power to persuade over in the House? A question to be asked. In the fast-track impeachment process in the House of Representatives, the House majority persuade the American people. Not just partisans, rather, did the House's case win over the overwhelming majority of consensus of the American people? the question fairly to be asked.
will I cast my vote to convict and remove the President of the United States when not a single member of the President's party, the party of Lincoln, was persuaded at any time in the process? In contrast, and when I was here last week, I noted for the record of these proceedings that in the Nixon impeachment, the House vote to authorize the impeachment inquiry was 410 to 4. In the Clinton impeachment, divisive, controversial, 31 Democrats voted in favor of the impeachment inquiry. Here, of course, and in sharp contrast, the answer is none. It is said that we live in highly and perhaps hopelessly partisan times. It is said that no one is open to persuasion anymore. They're getting their news entirely from their favorite media platform. And that platform of choice is fatally deterministic. Well, at least the decision of decision makers under oath who are bound by sacred duty, by oath or affirmation to do impartial justice, leaves the platforms out. Those modern day intermediaries and shapers of thought, of expression, of opinion are outside these walls where you serve. Finally, does what is before this court, very energetically described by the able house managers, but fairly viewed, rise to the level of a high crime or a misdemeanor? One so grave and so serious to bring about the profound disruption of the Article II branch, the disruption of the government, and to tell the American people, and yes, I will say, this is the way it would be read. Your vote in the last election is hereby declared null and void. And by the way, we're not going to allow you, the American people, to sit in judgment on this president and his record in November. That is neither freedom nor is it justice. It's certainly not consistent with the most basic freedom of we, the people, the freedom to vote. I thank the court. I yield to my colleague, Mr. Pupura. Members of the Senate, good afternoon. I will be relatively brief today and will not repeat the arguments that we've made throughout, but I just want to highlight a few things. There are a number of reasons why the articles of impeachment are deficient and must fail. My colleagues have spent the past week describing those reasons. In my time today, I'd like to review just a few core facts, which again, remember, are all drawn from the record on which the President was impeached in the House and that the House managers brought to this body in support 
of the President's removal. First, the President did not condition security assistance or a meeting on anything during the July 25 call. In fact, both Ambassador Yovanovitch and Mr. Tim Morrison confirmed that the Javelin missiles and the security assistance were completely unrelated. The concerns that Lieutenant Colonel Vindman expressed on the call were, by his own words and admission, based on deep policy concerns. And remember, as we said before, and everyone in this room knows, the President sets the foreign policy. The unelected staff implements the foreign policy. Others on the call, including Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's boss, Mr. Morrison, as well as Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, had no such concerns and have stated that they have heard nothing improper, unlawful, or otherwise troubling on the July 25 call. Second, President Zelensky and his top advisors agreed that there was nothing wrong with the July 25 call and that they felt no pressure from President Trump. President Zelensky said that the call was good, normal, and no one pushed me. President Zelensky's top advisor, Andrei Yermak, was asked if he had ever felt there was a connection between the U.S. military aid and the requests for investigations. He was adamant that we never had that feeling and we did not have the feeling that this aid was connected to any one specific issue. Several other top Ukrainian officials have said the same, both publicly and in readouts of the July 25 call to Ambassador Taylor, Ambassador Volker, and others. Third, President Zelensky and the highest levels of the Ukrainian government did not learn of the pause until August 28, 2019, more than a month after the July 25 call between President Trump and President Zelensky. President Zelensky himself said, I had no idea the military aid was held up. When I did find out, I raised it with Pence at a meeting in Warsaw, referring to the Vice President. The meeting in Warsaw took place three days after the Politico article was published on September 1, 2019. Mr. Yermak likewise said that President Zelensky and his key advisors learned of the pause only from the August 28 Politico article. And just last week, while we were in this trial, Alexander Daniluk, former chairman of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, said he first found out that the U.S. was withholding aid to Ukraine by reading Politico's article published August 28. Mr. Daniluk also said there was panic within the Zelensky administration when they found out about the hold from the Politico article, indicating that the highest levels of the administration were unaware of the pause until the article was published. And if that's not enough, Ambassador Volker, Ambassador Taylor, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State George Kent, and Mr. Morrison all also testified that the Ukrainians did not know about the security hold until the Politico article on August 28. And we showed you the text message from Mr. Yermak to Ambassador Volker just hours after the Politico article was published. You also remember all of the high-level bilateral meetings at which the Ukrainians did not bring up the pause in the security assistance because they did not know about it. When they did find out on August 28, 
They raised the issue at the very next meeting in Warsaw on September 1st. This is a really important point. As Ambassador Volker testified, if the Ukrainians didn't know about the pause, then there was no leverage implied. That's why the House managers have kept claiming and continue to claim throughout the trial that the high-level Ukrainians somehow knew about the pause before late August. That's inaccurate. We pointed out that Laura Cooper, on whom they rely, testified that she didn't really know what the emails she saw relating to security assistance were about. We told you that Catherine Croft, who worked for Ambassador Volker, who worked for Ambassador Volker, couldn't remember the specifics of when she believed the Ukrainian embassy learned of the pause and that she didn't remember when news of the pause became public. The House managers also mentioned Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who claimed to have vague recollections of fielding unspecified queries about aid from Ukrainians in the mid-August time frame. But Lieutenant Colonel Vindman ultimately agreed that the Ukrainians first learned about the hold on security assistance probably around when the first stories emerged in the open source. And former Deputy Foreign Minister Olena Zerkal's claim that she knew about the pause in July is inconsistent with statements by her boss, the then Foreign Minister of Ukraine, who said that he learned of the pause from a news article, of which the August 28 Politico article was the first, as well as those of all of the other top-level Ukrainian officials I've mentioned, the testimony of the top U.S. diplomats responsible for Ukraine, and the many intervening meetings at which the pause was not mentioned. Fourth, none of the House witnesses testified that President Trump ever said there was any linkage between security assistance and investigations. When Ambassador Sondland asked the President on approximately September 9, the President told him, I want nothing. I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo. Before he asked the President, Ambassador Sondland presumed and told Ambassador Taylor and Mr. Morrison that there was a connection between the security assistance and the investigations. That was before he asked the President directly. Even earlier, on August 31, Senator Ron Johnson asked the President if there was any connection between security assistance and investigations. The President answered, no way, I would never do that. Who told you that? Under Secretary of State David Hale, Mr. Kent, and Ambassador Volker all testified that they were not aware of any connection whatsoever between security assistance and investigations. The House managers repeatedly point to a statement by Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney during an October press conference. When it became clear that the media was misinterpreting his comments or that he had simply misspoken, Mr. Mulvaney promptly, on the very day of the press conference, issued a written statement making clear that there was no quid pro quo. Here's a statement. Let me be clear. There was absolutely no quid pro quo between Ukrainian military aid and any investigation into the 2016 election. The President never told me to withhold any money until the Ukrainians did anything related to the server. The only reasons we were holding the money was because of concern about lack of support from other nations and concerns over corruption. Accordingly, Mr. Mulvaney in no way confirmed a link between the pause security assistance and investigations. A garbled or misinterpreted statement or a mistaken statement that is promptly clarified on the same day as the original statement is not the kind of reliable evidence that would lead to the removal of the President of the United States from office. 
And in any event, Mr. Mulvaney also stated during the press conference itself that the money held up had absolutely nothing to do with Biden. Now, why does this all matter? I think Senator Romney really got to the heart of this issue on Thursday evening when he asked both parties whether there is any evidence that President Trump directed anyone to tell the Ukrainians that security assistance was being held up on the condition of an investigation into the Bidens. That was the question. There is no such evidence. Fifth, the security assistance was released when the President's concerns with burden sharing and corruption were addressed by a number of people, including some in this chamber today, without Ukraine ever announcing or undertaking any investigations. You have heard repeatedly that no one in the administration knew why the security assistance was paused. That's not true. Two of the House manager's own witnesses testified regarding the reason for the pause. As Mr. Morrison testified, at a July meeting attended by officials throughout the executive branch agencies, the reason provided for the pause by a representative from the Office of Management and Budget was that the President was concerned about corruption in Ukraine, and he wanted to make sure that Ukraine was doing enough to manage that corruption. Further, according to Mark Sandy, Deputy Associate Director for National Security at the Office of Management and Budget, we had received requests for additional information on what other countries were contributing to Ukraine. We told you about the work that was being done to monitor and collect information about anti-corruption reforms in Ukraine and burden sharing during the summer pause. We told you about how, when President Zelensky asked Vice President Pence in Poland about the pause, Vice President Pence asked, according to Jennifer Williams, what the status of his reform efforts were that we, he could then convey back to the President and also wanting to hear if there was more that European countries could do to support Ukraine. Mr. Morrison, who was actually at the Warsaw meeting, testified similarly that Vice President Pence delivered a message about anti-corruption and burden sharing. We told you about the September 11 call with President Trump, Senator Portman, and Vice President Pence. Mr. Morrison testified the entire process, culminating in the September 11 call, gave the President the confidence he needed to approve the release of the security sector assistance, all without any investigations being announced. Now, I've focused so far on the House manager's allegation that there was a quid pro quo for the security assistance. Let me turn very briefly to the claim that a presidential meeting was also conditioned on investigations. Remember, by the end of the July 25 call, President Trump had personally invited President Zelensky to meet three times, twice by phone, once in a letter, without any preconditions. You heard that the White House was working behind the scenes to schedule the meeting and how difficult scheduling those meetings can be. The two presidents planned to meet in Warsaw just as President Zelensky requested on the July 25 call. President Trump had to cancel at the last minute due to Hurricane Dorian. President Trump and President Zelensky then met three weeks later in New York without Ukraine announcing any investigations. Finally, one thing that the House managers' witnesses agreed upon was that President Trump has strengthened the relationship between the U.S. and Ukraine and that he has been a better friend to Ukraine and stronger opponent of Russian aggression than President Obama. 
Most notably, Ambassador Taylor, Ambassador Volker, and Ambassador Yovanovitch all testified that President Trump's reversal of his predecessor's refusal to send the Ukrainians lethal aid was a meaningful and significant policy development an improvement for which President Trump deserves credit. Just last week, Ambassador Volker, who knows more about U.S.-Ukraine relationships than nearly, if not everyone, published a piece in Foreign Policy magazine. I'd like to read you an excerpt. Beginning in mid-2017, and continuing until the impeachment investigation began in September 2019, U.S. policy toward Ukraine was strong, consistent, and enjoyed support across the administration, bipartisan support in Congress, and support among U.S. allies and in Ukraine itself. The Trump administration also coordinated Ukraine policy closely with allies in Europe and Canada, maintaining a united front against Russian aggression and in favor of Ukraine's democracy, reform, sovereignty, and territorial integrity. Ukraine policy is one of the few areas where U.S. and European policies have been in lockstep. The administration lifted the Obama-era ban on the sale of lethal defensive arms to Ukraine, delivering, among other things, Javelin anti-tank missiles, Coast Guard cutters, and anti-sniper systems. Despite the recent furor over the pause in U.S. security assistance this past summer, the circumstances of which are the topic of impeachment hearings, U.S. defensive support for Ukraine has been and remains robust, and more, according to Ambassador Volker. It is therefore a tragedy for both the United States and Ukraine that U.S. partisan politics, which have culminated in the ongoing impeachment process, have left Ukraine and its new reform-minded President Vladimir Zelensky exposed and relatively isolated. The only one who benefits from this is Russian President Vladimir Putin. Those are the words of Ambassador Volker. He was one of the House manager's key witnesses. He was the very first witness to testify in the House proceedings on October 3rd. And so I think it's fitting that he may be the last witness we hear from. In his parting words, Ambassador Volker admonishes that it is U.S. partisan politics which have culminated in this impeachment process that have imperiled Ukraine. In sum, the House manager's case is not overwhelming, and it is not undisputed. The House managers bear the very heavy burden of proof. They did not meet it. It's not because they didn't get the additional witnesses or documents that they failed to pursue. It's because their own witnesses have already offered substantial evidence undermining their case. And importantly, as you have heard from Professor Dershowitz and from Mr. Philbin, the first article does not support or allege an impeachable offense regardless of any additional witnesses or documents. Members of the Senate, it has been an incredible honor and privilege to speak to you in this chamber. I hope that what I've shown has been helpful to your understanding of the facts, and I respectfully ask you to vote to acquit the President of the wrongful charges against him. I yield to Mr. Philbin. Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate, 
We've heard repeatedly throughout the past week and a half or so that the president is not above the law. And I'd like to focus in my last remarks here on an equally important principle, which is that the House of Representatives also is not above the law in the way they conduct the impeachment proceedings and bring a matter here before the Senate. Because in very significant and important respects, they didn't follow the law. From the outset, they began an impeachment inquiry here without a vote from the House and therefore without lawful authority delegated to any committees to begin an impeachment inquiry against the President of the United States. That was unprecedented in our history. The Speaker of the House does not have authority by holding a press conference to delegate the sole power of impeachment from the House to a committee. And the result was 23 totally unauthorized and invalid subpoenas were issued as a beginning of this impeachment inquiry. After that, the House violated every principle of due process and fundamental fairness in the way the hearings were conducted. And we've been through that. I'm not going to go through the details again. But it's significant because denying the President the ability to be present through counsel, to cross-examine witnesses, and to present evidence fundamentally skewed the proceedings in the House of Representatives. It left the President without the ability to have a fair proceeding, and it meant it reflected the fact that those proceedings were not truly designed as a search for truth. We have procedural protections. We have the right of cross-examination as a mechanism for getting to the facts. And that was not present in the House of Representatives. And lastly, Manager Schiff, as an interested witness who had been involved in, or at least his staff, in discussions with the whistleblower, then guided the factual inquiry in the House. So why does all of this matter? It matters because the lack of the vote meant that there was no democratic accountability and no lawful authorization for the beginning of the process. It meant that there were procedural defects that produced a record that this chamber can't rely on for any conclusion other than to reject the articles of impeachment and to acquit the president. And it mattered because the president, in response to these, these uh, violations of the president's rights and to the failure to follow proper procedure, failure to follow the law, has rights of his own, rights of the executive branch to be asserted. And that's the president's response to the invalid subpoenas was that they're invalid and we're not going to comply with them. And the president asserted other rights of the executive branch. When there were subpoenas for his senior advisors to come and testify, along with virtually every president since Nixon, he asserted the principle of immunity of his senior advisors, that they could not be called to testify. And the president asserted the defects in subpoenas that called for um, executive branch officials to testify without the presence of agency counsel. All established principles that have been asserted before. Now, what do the House managers say in response? They accuse the president in their second article of impeachment, trying to assert obstruction, that this was unprecedented response, an unprecedented refusal to cooperate. It was unprecedented that 23 subpoenas were issued in a presidential impeachment inquiry without valid authorization from the House. The President's response 
was to a totally unprecedented attempt by the House to do that which it had no authority to do. They've asserted today and on other occasions that the President's legal arguments in response to these subpoenas, they've said that it's indiscriminate. There was just a blanket defiance. I think I've shown that that wasn't true. There were three very specific legal rationales provided by the executive branch as to different defects and different subpoenas. And there were letters explaining those defects. But there was no attempt by the House to attempt an accommodations process, even though the White House offered to engage in an accommodations process. There was no attempt by the House to use other mechanisms to resolve the differences with the executive branch. It was just straight to impeachment. Now, they've asserted today and on other occasions that the President's counsel, that I and my colleagues have made bad faith legal arguments that are just window dressing. Now, in an ordinary court of law, one doesn't accuse opposing counsel of making bad faith arguments lightly. And if you make that accusation, it has to be backed up with analysis. But there hasn't been analysis here. There's just been accusation. When the President asserts the immunity of his senior advisors, that's a principle that's been asserted by virtually every president since Nixon. And let me read you what Attorney General Janet Reno during the Clinton administration said about this exact immunity. She said that immediate advisors to the president are immune from being compelled to testify before Congress and that, quote, the immunity such advisors enjoy from testimonial compulsion by a congressional committee is absolute and may not be overborne by competing congressional interests. End quote. And she went on to say, quote, compelling one of the president's immediate advisors to testify on a matter of executive decision making would raise serious constitutional problems no matter what the assertion of congressional need. End quote. Was that bad faith? Was Attorney General Reno asserting that principle in bad faith and President Clinton? President Obama asserted the same principle for his senior political advisor. Was that bad faith? Of course not. These are principles defending the separation of powers that presidents have asserted for decades. President Trump was defending the institutional interests of the office of the presidency in asserting the same principles here. That is vital for the continued operation of the separation of powers. Now, House managers have also said that once the president asserted these defects in their subpoenas and resisted them, they had no time to do anything else. They had to just go straight to impeachment. They couldn't accommodate. They couldn't go through a contempt process. They couldn't litigate. But the idea that there is no time for dealing with that friction with the executive branch is really antithetical to the proper functioning of the separation of powers. It goes against part of the way the separation of powers is supposed to work. That interbranch friction is meant to take time to resolve. It's meant to slow things down and to be somewhat difficult to work through and to force the branches to work together to accommodate the interests of each branch, not just to jump to the conclusion that, well, we have no time for that, we have to assert absolute authority on one side of the equation. And this is something that Justice Brandeis pointed out in a famous dissent in Myers versus the United States, but has since been cited many times by the court majority. 
He said, quote, the doctrine of the separation of powers was adopted by the convention of 1787 not to promote efficiency, so he's saying not to make government move quickly, but to preclude the exercise of arbitrary power. The purpose was not to avoid friction, but by means of the inevitable friction incident to the distribution of the governmental powers among the departments to save the people from autocracy. That is a vitally important principle that the friction between the branches, even if it means taking longer, even if it means not jumping straight to impeachment, is part of the constitutional design. And it's required to force the branches to determine incrementally where their interests lie, to resolve disputes incrementally, and not to jump straight to the ultimate nuclear weapon of the Constitution. We've also heard from the House managers that everything the President did here, asserting prerogatives of his office, asserting principles of immunity, must be wrong, must be rejected, because only the guilty will assert a privilege. Only the guilty won't allow evidence. That is definitely not a principle of American jurisprudence. It's antithetical to fundamental principles of our system of laws. As we pointed out in our trial memorandum in Border Kircher versus Hayes and in other decisions, the Supreme Court has made clear that the very idea of punishing someone for asserting rights or privileges or suggesting that asserting the right or privilege is evidence of guilt is contrary to basic principles of due process. And it takes on an even more uh, malignant tenor to it when that principle is asserted in the context of a dispute between the branches relating to the boundaries of their relative powers. Because what the House is essentially asserting in this case is that any assertion of the prerogatives of the office of the president, any attempt to maintain the principles of separation of powers of executive confidentiality that have been asserted by past presidents can be treated by the House as evidence of guilt. And here, their entire second article of impeachment is structured on the assumption that the House can treat the assertion of principles grounded in the separation of powers as an impeachable offense. I mean, boiled down to its essence, it is an assertion that defending the separation of powers, if the president does it in a way that they don't like, in a time that they don't like, can be treated as an impeachable offense. And that's an incredibly dangerous assertion. Because if it were accepted, it would fundamentally alter the balance between the different branches of our government. It would suggest, and Professor Turley explained this, Professor Dershowitz explained it here, that if Congress makes a demand on the executive and the executive resists, Based on separation of powers principles that past presidents have asserted, Congress can nonetheless say, we've decided to proceed by impeachment. We have the sole power, and this is the principle they assert in the House Judiciary Committee report. We have the sole power of impeachment. That means we are the sole judge of our own actions. There's no need for accommodation. There's no need for the courts. We will determine that any resistance you provide is itself impeachable. That would fundamentally transform our government by essentially giving the House the same sort of power as a parliamentary system 
to use impeachment as, in effect, a vote of no confidence against a prime minister, not the way the framers set up our three-branch system of government with a powerful executive who would be independent from the legislature. That's why Professor Turley explained that the second article of impeachment here would be an abuse of power by Congress. It would make the executive dependent on Congress in a manner antithetical to the system that the framers envisioned. So why is it that there are all of these defects in the House manager's case for impeachment? Why are they asserting principles like only the guilty would assert privileges? That's not part of our system of law. Why are they asserting that if the executive resists, the House has the sole power to determine the boundaries of its own power in relation to the executive, also not something that is in our system of jurisprudence. I think it's because, and why, why the lack of due process in the proceedings below? I think as we've explained, it's because this was a purely partisan impeachment from the start. It was purely partisan and purely political. And that's something that the framers foresaw. And I'll point to one passage from Federalist number 65, a number of different passages from that have been cited over the course of the past week. But I don't think this one has. It's just after Hamilton points out, he warns that an impeachment in the House could be the result of persecution of an intemperate or designing majority in the House of Representatives. And then he goes on. Though this latter supposition may seem harsh and might not likely often to be verified, yet it ought not to be forgotten that the demon of faction will, at certain seasons, extend his scepter over all numerous bodies of men. Now, that's very 18th century language. We don't talk about demons extending their scepter over men. But it's prescient nonetheless. We might not be comfortable with the terms, but it's accurate for what can happen. And that is what's happened in this impeachment. This was a purely partisan political process. It was opposed bipartisanly in the House. It was done by a process that was not designed to persuade anyone or to get to the truth or to provide process and abide by past precedents. It was done to get it finished by Christmas on a political timetable. And it's not something that this chamber should condone. That in itself provides a sufficient and substantial reason for rejecting the articles of impeachment. Members of the Senate, it's been an honor to be able to address you over the past week and a half or two weeks. And I thank you for your attention. And I yield to Mr. Seculum. Mr. Chief Justice, Majority Leader McConnell, Democratic Leader Schumer, House Managers. I want to join my colleagues in thanking you for your patience over these two weeks. I want to focus on one last point. We believe that we have established overwhelmingly that both articles of impeachment fail to allege impeachable offenses and that, therefore, both articles 1 and 2 must fail. This entire campaign of impeachment 
that started from the very first day that the president was inaugurated was a partisan one, and it should never happen again. For three years, this push for impeachment came straight from the president's opponents, and when it finally reached a crescendo, it put this body, the United States Senate, into a horrible position. I want to start by taking a look back. On the screen is a graphic of a Washington Post headline. On January 20th, 2017, the campaign to impeach President Trump has begun. This was posted 19 minutes after he was sworn in. I also want to play a video where members as early as January 15, 2017, before the president was sworn into office, were calling for his impeachment. I want to say this for Donald Trump, who I may well be voting to impeach. I think that uh, he hit, Donald Trump has already done a number of things which legitimately raised the question of impeachment. And I will fight every day until he is impeached. I rise today, Mr. Speaker, to call for the impeachment of the President of the United States of America. The main reason I'm interested is not so much to win the Senate, which is a byproduct, it's because I think he's committed impeachable offenses, he needs the scarlet eye on his chest. But if we get to that point, then yes, I think that's grounds to start impeachment proceedings. So we're calling upon the House to begin impeachment hearings immediately. Why do you think that President Trump specifically should be impeached? Well, there are four, five reasons why we think he should be impeached. On the impeachment of Donald Trump, would you vote yes or no? I would vote yes. I would vote, I would vote to impeach. Because we're going to go in there, we're going to impeach the mother I introduced articles of impeachment in July of 2017. All I did yesterday was make sure that those articles did not expire. I'm concerned that if we don't impeach this president, he will get reelected. It is time to bring impeachment charges against him. My personal view is that uh, he richly deserves impeachment. One of the members of the House of Representatives said, we're bringing these articles of impeachment so he doesn't get elected again. And here we are, 10 months before an election, doing exactly what they predicted. The whistleblower's lawyer, Mr. Zaid, sent out a tweet on January 30th, 2017. Let me put that up on the screen. The coup has started. First of many steps, rebellion, impeachment will follow ultimately. And here we are. What this body, what this nation, and what this president has just endured, what the House managers have forced upon this great body is unprecedented and unacceptable. This is exactly and precisely what the founders feared. This was the first totally partisan presidential impeachment in our nation's history, and it should be our last. What the House Democrats have done to this nation, to the Constitution, to the office of the President, to the President himself, and to this body is outrageous. They have cheapened the awesome power of impeachment, and unfortunately, of course, the country is not better for that. We urge this body to dispense with these partisan articles of impeachment for the sake of the nation, for the sake of the Constitution. As we have demonstrably proved, the articles are flawed on their face. 
They were a product of a reckless impeachment inquiry that violated all notions of due process and fundamental fairness. And then incredibly, incredibly, when these articles were finally brought to this chamber, without a single Republican vote, the managers then claimed that now, now they need more process. Now they need more witnesses. That all of the witnesses that they compiled and all the testimony that you heard was not enough. That your job was to do their job, the one, frankly, they failed to do. We've already said many times the charges themselves do not allege a crime or a misdemeanor, let alone a high crime or misdemeanor. There is nothing in the charges that could permit the removal of a duly elected president or warrant the negation of an election and the subversion of the American people's will. And that should be whatever party you're affiliated with. You are being asked to do this when tonight citizens of Iowa are going to be caucusing for the first caucus for the presidential season, election season, for the Democratic Party. Tonight! I think there's one thing that's clear. The President has had a concern about other countries carrying their fair share of burdens, of financial aid. No one can doubt, and I think we've clearly set forth the issue of corruption in Ukraine. The President's and the Administration's policy on evaluating foreign aid and the conditions upon which it's given have been clear. Mr. Papura laid that out in great detail. The bottom line is that the President's opponents don't like the President and they really don't like his policies. They objected to the fact that the President chose not to rely each and every time on the advice of some of his subordinates. Even though he, not those unelected bureaucrats who work for him, were elected to office. The president, under our constitutional structure, is the one who decides our nation's foreign policy. Here is a perfect example. The House managers brought this up frequently. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, he admitted on page 155 of his transcript testimony that he did not know if there was a crime or anything of that nature, that's his quote, but that he, again, quote, had deep policy concerns. So there you have it. The real issue is policy disputes. Elections have consequences, we all know that. And if you do not like the policies of a particular administration or a particular candidate, you are free and welcome to vote for another candidate. But the answer is elections, not impeachment. To be clear, in our country, in the United States, the president elected by the American people is, in the words of the Supreme Court, the sole organ of the federal government in the field of international relations and foreign policy for our government. No unelected bureaucrats, not unhappy members of the House of Representatives. And however you were to define high crimes and misdemeanors, there is no definition that includes disagreeing with a policy decision as an acceptable ground to removal 
of a President of the United States. None. The first article of impeachment is therefore constitutionally invalid and should be immediately rejected by the Senate. Now as to the second article of impeachment, President Trump in no way obstructed Congress. The President acted with extraordinary transparency by declassifying releasing the transcript of the July 25th call and the earlier call. It is that July 25th call which is purportedly at the heart of the articles of impeachment. He did so soon after the inquiry was announced. And despite the fact that privileges applied that could have been asserted, he released them anyways in order to facilitate the House's inquiry and cut through all of it, all of the hearsay, all of the hysteronics, to get the transcript out. Now, I want to take a moment, because my colleague, Deputy White House Counsel Pat Philbin, addressed this idea of privilege. I've heard over and over again, and you have too, phrases like cover-up, that the assertion of a privilege is a cover-up. Here's what the Supreme Court of the United States has said about privileges in a variety of contexts. To punish a person because he has done what the law allows him to do is a due process violation of the basic order, the basic sort. And for an agent of the state to pursue a course of action whose objective is to penalize a person's reliance on his constitutional rights is patently unconstitutional, and how much more so when you're talking about the President of the United States. How about this? And this goes in the context of assertions of privileges, other constitutional privileges. The allegation has been that if you assert a privilege, you're assumed to be guilty. That's been the assertion. Why, why would you do that? Well, we've, we've explained at great length, and I do not want to go over that again, the importance of the executive privilege and what it means to separation of powers and the functioning of our government, but I will say this. As the Supreme Court has recognized in other contexts with other privileges, the privileges served to protect the innocent who otherwise might be ensnared by ambiguous circumstances. In another Supreme Court case, Quinn versus the United States, the privilege this court has stated was generally regarded then as now as a privilege of great value, a protection of the innocent. The opinion goes on to say, in a safeguard against heedless, unfounded, or tyrannical prosecutions. I trace for you, and I'm not going to do it again, how all of this started. All those years ago, three years ago, how all of this began. There is no point to go over that because that evidence is undisputed, and the FISA Court's most recent orders put that in fair play. We've talked about the fact that the House violated its own fundamental rules in a series of unlawful subpoenas. I won't go over that again. Mr. Philbin laid that out in great detail. But I do think it's important to note that when seeking the advice of the President's closest advisors, despite the well-known bipartisan guidance from the Department of Justice regarding immunity, the House Managers asked, Act as if it does not exist. They sought testimony on matters, on matters from the executive branch's confidential internal decision-making process on matters of foreign relations and national security, and that is when protections are at their highest level. Let's not forget that the House barred the attendance of executive branch counsel at witness proceedings when executive branch members were being examined. 
Notwithstanding these substantial abuses of process, the executive branch responded to each and every subpoena and identified the specific, sp specific deficiencies found in each. You cannot just remove constitutional violations by saying you didn't comply. You've heard that one recipient of a subpoena, and this is, in fact, we've talked about it a number of times, but I think as we, we wrap up, I think it's worth seeing, saying again, one subpoena recipient did seek a declaratory judgment as to the validity of the subpoena that he had received. It was set up to go to court. A judge was going to make a decision. The House withdrew the subpoena and mooted the recipient's case before the court could rule. Now, was it because they didn't like the judge that was selected? Was it because they didn't like the way the ruling was going to go? Was it they didn't mean to have that witness in the first place? Whatever the reason, there is one undisputed fact. As the case was in court, they mooted it out by removing the subpoena. The assertion of valid constitutional privileges cannot be an impeachable offense. And that's what Article II is based on, the obstruction of Congress. For the sake of the Constitution, for the sake of the office of the President, this body must stand as a steady bulwark against this reckless and dangerous proposition. It doesn't just affect this President. It affects every man or woman who occupies that high office. So as we said with the first article of impeachment, we believe the second article of impeachment is invalid. It should also be rejected. In passing the first article of impeachment, the House attempted to usurp the President's constitutional power to determine policy, especially foreign policy. In passing the second article of impeachment, the House attempted to control the constitutional privileges and immunities of the executive branch. All of this while simultaneously disrespecting the framers' system of checks and balances, which designates the judicial branch as the arbiter of interbranch disputes. By approving both articles, the House of Representatives violated our constitutional order, illegally abused their power of impeachment in order to obstruct the President's ability to faithfully execute the duties of his office. These articles fail on their face as they do not meet the constitutional standard for impeachable offenses. No amount of testimony could change that fact. We've already discussed some of the specifics. I think um, Alexander Hamilton's been quoted a lot. And there's a reason. What has occurred over the past two weeks, really the past three months, is exactly what Alexander Hamilton and other founders of our great country feared. I believe that Hamilton was prophetic in Federalist 65 when he warned how impeachment had the ability to agitate, his words, the passions of the whole community and divide it into parties more or less friendly or inimical to the accused. He warned that impeachment would, and I quote, connect itself with pre-existing fractions and will enlist all their animosities, partialities, influence and interest on one side or on the other. He continued, the convention, it appears, thought the Senate, this body, most fit as the depository of this important trust. Those who best can discern the intrinsic difficulty of the thing will be the least hasty in condemning that opinion 
and will be most inclined to allow due weight to the arguments which may be supposed to have produced it. In the same Federalist 65, Hamilton regarded the members of this Senate not only as the inquisitors for the nation, but as the representatives of the, nations, the nation as a whole. He said these words, quote, where else than in the Senate could have been found a tribunal sufficiently dignified or significantly independent? What other body would be likely to feel confident enough in its own situation to preserve unawed and uninfluenced the necessary impartiality between an individual accused and the representatives of the people, his accusers? You took an oath. They questioned the oath. You are sitting here as a trier of fact. They said the Senate's on trial. Based on all of the presentations that we've made in our trial brief and the arguments that we've put forward today, again, we believe both articles should be immediately, immediately rejected. Now, our nation's representatives holding office in this great body must unite today to protect our Constitution and separation of powers. And you know, there was a time not that long ago, even within this administration, where bipartisan agreements could be reached to serve the interests of the American people. Take a listen to this. Take a look. And today, we had a beautiful bipartisan moment where Democrats and Republicans are working together uh, to keep that fentanyl out of our country, to use these devices uh, to accomplish that goal. It's not perfect. We need to do a lot more. But today was a very good step, and I want to praise uh, all of the people, Democrats and Republicans, and the President, for working together on this bill. Oh, as has been said, and we can see by the people assembled here, if we work together in a bipartisan way, we can get things done. And this is a place where we can all agree that we've got to do more and where we can work together. So I applaud everyone's efforts. We are proudly joined today by so many members of Congress, Republicans, Democrats, who worked very, very hard on this bill. This was really an effort of everybody. It was a bipartisan success, something you don't hear too much about. But I think you will be. I actually believe we maybe will be over the coming period of time. I hope so. I think so. It's so good for the country. Thank everybody. This was incredible bipartisan support. We passed this in the Senate, 87 to 12. That's unheard of. And then in the House, we passed it 358 <coughs> to 36. I'll be here to help celebrate uh, your signing of this next step in this critical uh, women's growth and prosperity and development initiative. It dovetails nicely uh, with the Build Act, bipartisan bill you signed into law, um, with the WE Act, which recognizes this as a critical strategy. So I think this is a tremendous initiative. Thank you, Mr. Thank President. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. This is what the American people expect. I simply ask this body to stand firm today. Protect the integrity of the United States Senate. Stand firm today and protect the office of the President. Stand firm today and protect the Constitution. Stand firm today and protect the will of the American people and their vote. Stand firm today and protect our nation. And I ask that this partisan impeachment come to an end to restore our constitutional balance. For that is, in my view and in our view, what justice demands and the Constitution requires. With that, Mr. Chief Justice, I yield my time to the White House Counsel, Mr. Pat Cipollone. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, members of the Senate. 
I will leave you with just a few brief points. First, I want to express on behalf of our entire team our gratitude. Our gratitude to you, Mr. Chief Justice, for presiding over this trial. Our gratitude to you, Leader McConnell. Our gratitude to you, Democratic Leader Schumer, and all of you on both sides of the aisle for your time and attention. I also want to express our, my gratitude to our team. It's large, and with, with a large number of people who have helped in this effort, I won't name them all, but I want to thank them for their effort and their hard work in the de defense of the Constitution, in defense of the President, in defense of the American people's right to vote. I want to thank, as members of that team, the Republican members of the House of Representatives, who have also been engaged in that effort throughout this entire, entire period of time, and the Democrats in the House who voted against this partisan impeachment. And I also want to thank the President of the United States for his confidence in us to send us here to represent him, to all of you in this great body, and for all he has done on behalf of the American people. I would make just a couple of additional points. Number one, as we've said repeatedly. We've never been in a situation like this in our history. We have a bi a, a, an impeachment that is purely partisan and political. It's opposed by, by, by bipartisan members of the House. It does not even allege a violation of law. It is passed in an election year, and we're sitting here on the day that election season begins in Iowa. It is wrong. There is only one answer to that, and the answer is to reject those articles of impeachment, to have confidence in the American people, to have confidence in the result of the upcoming election, to have confidence and respect for the last election and not throw it out, and to leave the choice of the President to the American people, and to leave to them also the accountability for the members of the House of Representatives who did that. That's what the Constitution requires. Point number two, and I think that should be done on a bipartisan basis, and that's what I ask you to do. Point number two, I believe the American people are tired of the endless investigations and false investigations that have been coming out of the House from the beginning, as my colleague, uh, Mr. Sekulow, pointed out. It is a waste of tax dollars. It is a waste of the American people's time. And I would argue, more importantly, most importantly, the opportunity cost of that, the opportunity cost of that, what you could be doing, what the House could be doing, working with the President to achieve those things on behalf of the American people is far more important than the endless investigations, the endless false attacks, the besmirching of the names of good people. This is something that we should reject together, and we should move forward in a bipartisan fashion and in the way that this President has done successfully. He's achieved successful results in the economy and across so many other areas, working with you on both sides of the aisle, and he wants to continue to do that. And that's what I believe the American people want those of you elected to come here to Washington to focus on, to spend your time on, 
to unify us as opposed to the bitter division that's caused by these types of proceedings. So we, at the end of the day, we put our faith in the Senate. We put our faith in the Senate because we know you will put your faith in the American people. You will leave this choice to them where it belongs. We believe that they should choose the president. We believe that this president, day after day, has put their interests first, has achieved successful results, has fulfilled the promises he made to them, and he is eager to go before the American people in this upcoming election. At the end of the day, that is the only result. It is a result, I believe, guided by your wise words from the past, that we can together end the era of impeachment, that we can together put faith in the American people, put faith in their wisdom, put faith in their judgment. That's where our founders put the power. That's where it belongs. And I urge you, on behalf of those Americans, of every American, on behalf of all of your constituents, to reject these articles of impeachment. It's the right thing for our country. The President has done nothing wrong. And these types of impeachments must end. You'll vindicate the right to vote. You'll vindicate the Constitution. You'll vindicate the rule of law by rejecting by rejecting these articles. And I ask you to do that on a bipartisan basis this week and end the era of impeachment once and for all. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to us, for your attention, and for considering our case on behalf of the President. I come here today to ask you Reject these articles of impeachment. Reject these articles of impeachment. I thank you for granting us the permission to appear here in the Senate on behalf of this President. And I ask you, on his behalf, on behalf of the American people, to reject these articles. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice and Senators, it's a problem that here at the end of the trial, the President's lawyers still dispute the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors. Some say it requires an ordinary crime or that if the President misbehaves when he thinks it's good for the country, it's okay. Neither is correct. We need to clear this up by looking at what the Founders said. When the Founders created the Presidency, they gave the President great power. They'd just been through a war to get rid of a king with too much power, and they needed a check on the great power given to the president. It was late in the Constitutional Convention that they turned to the impeachment clause. Madison argued in favor of impeachment. He said it was indispensable. Mason asked, quote, shall any man be above justice? Above all, shall that man be above it who can commit the most extensive injustice? 
Randolph defended the propriety of impeachment since, quote, the executive will have great opportunity of abusing his power. Now, the original draft of the Constitution provided for impeachment only for treason or bribery. Mason asked, quote, why is the provision restrained to treason and bribery only? Treason, as defined in the Constitution, will not reach many great and dangerous offenses, and he added, Hastings is not guilty of treason. Attempts to subvert the Constitution might not be treason as defined. Now, Hastings' impeachment in Britain at this time was well known, and it wasn't limited to a crime. They considered adding the word maladministration to capture abuse of presidential power, but Madison objected. He said so vague a term would be equivalent to tenure during the pleasure of the Senate. So maladministration was withdrawn and replaced with the more certain term, high crimes and misdemeanors, because the founders knew the law. Blackstone's commentaries, which Madison said was a book in every man's hand, described high crimes and misdemeanors as offenses against king and government. Hamilton called high crimes and misdemeanors, quote, those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. During ratification, Randolph in Virginia cited the president's receipt of presents or emoluments from a foreign power as an example. And Mason's example was a president who would, quote, pardon crimes which were advised by himself or before indictment or conviction, quote, to stop inquiry and prevent detention, uh, detection. It's clear they knew what they wrote. The president's lawyers tried to create a muddle to confuse you. Don't let them. High crimes and misdemeanors mean abuse of power against the constitutional order, conduct that is corrupt, whether or not a crime. Now, some say no impeachment when there's an election coming, but without term limits when they wrote the Constitution, there was always an election coming. If impeachment in election years was not to be, our founders would have said so. So here we are, Congress passed a law to fund Ukraine to fight the Russians who invaded their country. President Trump illegally held that funding up to coerce Ukraine to announce an investigation to hurt his strongest election opponent. He abused his power corruptly to benefit himself personally, and then he tried to cover it up. That's impeachable. The facts are clear, and so is the Constitution. The only question is what you, the Senate, will do. Now, our founders created a government where the tension between the three branches would prevent authoritarianism. No one of the branches would be allowed to grab all the power. Impeachment was to make sure the president, who had the greatest opportunity to grab power, would be held in check. It's a blunt instrument, but it's what our founders gave us. Some of the founders thought the mere existence of the impeachment clause would prevent misconduct by presidents, but sadly, they were wrong, because twice in the last half century, a president corruptly used his power to try to cheat in an election. First Nixon with Watergate, and now another president corruptly abuses his power to cheat in an election. The founders worried about factions, what we'd call political parties. They built a system where each branch of government would jealously guard their power, not one where guarding the faction was more important than guarding the government. Opposing a president of your own party isn't easy. 
It wasn't easy when Republican Caldwell Butler voted to impeach Nixon in the Judiciary Committee. It wasn't easy for Senator Barry Goldwater to tell Nixon to resign. But your oath is not to do the easy thing. It's to do impartial justice. It requires conviction and removal of President Trump. Mr. Chief Justice, Counsel for the President, Senators. Since I was a little girl and started going to church, I've been inspired by the words in Scripture. Whatever you did for one of these least of my brothers, you did for me. We're called to always look out for the most vulnerable. Sometimes fighting for the most vulnerable means holding the most powerful accountable. And that's what we are here to do today. The American people will have to live with the decisions made in this chamber. In fact, senators, I believe that the decision in this case will affect the strength of democracies around the world. Democracy is a gift that each generation gives to the next one. If we say that this president can put his own interests above all else, even when lives are at stake, then we give our nation's children a weaker democracy than we inherited from those that came before us. The next generation deserves better. They are counting on us. I'm a Catholic, and my faith teaches me that we all need forgiveness. I have given this president the benefit of the doubt from the beginning. Despite my strong opposition to so many of his policies, I know that the success of our nation depends on the success of our leader. But he has let us down. Senators, we know what the president did and why he did it. This fact is seriously not in doubt. Senators on both sides of the aisle have said as much. The question for you now is, does it warrant removal from office? We say yes. We cannot simply hope that this president will realize that he has done wrong or inappropriate and hope that he does better. We have done that so many other times. We know that he has not apologized. He has not offered to change. We all know that he will do it again. What President Trump did this time pierces the heart of who we are as a country. We must stop him from further harming our democracy. We must stop him from further betraying his oath. We must stop him from tearing up our Constitution. The founders knew that in order for our republic to survive, we would need to be able to remove some of our leaders from office when they put their interests above the country's interest. Senators, we have proven that. 
This president committed what is called the ABCs of impeachable behavior, abusing its power, betraying the nation, and corrupting our elections. He deserves to be removed for taking the very actions that the framers feared would undermine our country. The framers designed impeachment for this very case. Senators, when I was growing up poor in South Texas, picking cotton, I confess, I didn't spend any time thinking about the framers. Like me, little girls and boys across America aren't asking at home what the framers meant by high crimes and misdemeanors. But someday, they will ask why we didn't do anything to stop this president who's put his, who put his own interests above what was good for all of us. They will ask. They will want to understand. Senators, we inherited a democracy. Now we must protect it and pass it on to the next generation. We simply can't give our children a democracy if their president is above the law. Because in this country, no one is above the law. Not me, not any of you, not even this president. Nadie está por encima de la ley. Nadie. This president must be removed. With that, I yield to my colleague, Mr. Crow. Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate, Two weeks ago, we started this trial promising to show you that the President withheld $391 million of foreign military aid to course an ally at war to help him win the 2020 election. And by many of your own admissions, we succeeded in showing you that, because the facts still matter. We also promised you that eventually all of the facts would come out, and that continues to be true. But we didn't just show you that the President abused his power and obstructed Congress. We painted a broader picture of President Trump, a picture of a man who thinks that the Constitution doesn't serve as a check on his power, but rather gives it to him in an unlimited way, a man who believes that his personal ambitions are synonymous with the good of the country, a man who, in his own words, thinks that if you're a star, they will let you do anything. In short, it's the picture of a man who will always put his own personal interests above the interests of the country that he has sworn to protect. But what's in an oath, anyway? Are they relics of the past? Do we simply recite them out of custom? To me, an oath represents a firm commitment to a life of service, a commitment to set aside your personal interest, your comfort, and your ambition to serve the greater good, a commitment to sacrifice. I explained to you last week that I believe America is great not because of the ambition of any one man, not simply because we say it's true, but because over our almost 250-year history, millions of Americans have taken the oath and they meant it. Many of them followed through on that oath by giving everything to keep it. But there is more to it than simply keeping your word because an oath is also a bond between people who have made a common promise. 
Perhaps the strongest example is the promise between the commander-in-chief and our men and women in uniform. Those men and women took the oath with the understanding that the commander-in-chief, our president, would always put the interests of the country in their interests above his own. And understanding that his orders will be in the best interests of the country and that their sacrifice in fulfilling those orders will always serve the common good. But what we have clearly shown the last few weeks and what President Trump has shown us the past few years is that this promise flows only one way. As Maya Angelou said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Many of us in this room are parents. We all try to teach our kids the important lessons of life. One of those lessons is that you won't always be the strongest, you won't always be the fastest, and you won't always win. There are a lot of things outside our control, but my wife and I have tried to teach our kids that what we can always control are our choices. It's in that spirit that hanging in my son's room is a quote from Harry Potter. The quote is from Professor Dumbledore, who said, It is our choices that show who we truly are, far more than our abilities. This trial will soon be over, but there will be many choices for all of us in the days ahead, the most pressing of which is how each of us will decide to fulfill our oath. More than our words, our choices will show the world who we really are, what type of leaders we will be and what type of nation we will be. So let me finish where I began with an explanation of why I am here standing before you. I've been carrying my kids' constitutions these last few weeks, and this morning I wrote a note to them to explain why I'm here. Our founders recognized the failings of all people, so they designed a system to ensure that the ideas and principles contained in this document would always be greater than any one person. It's the idea that no one is above the law. But our system only works if people stand up and fight for it. And fighting for something important always comes with a cost. Someday, you may be called upon to defend the principles and ideas embodied in our Constitution. May the memory and spirit of those who sacrificed for them in the past guide you and give you strength as you fight for them in the future. Thank you for your time. Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, and Counsel for the President, this is a defining moment in our history and a challenging time for our nation. A thousand things have gone through my mind since this body voted to not call witnesses in this trial. The vote was unprecedented. The President's former National Security Advisor indicated that he was willing to testify under oath before the Senate, yet this body did not want to hear what he had to say. The President's lawyers have asked you to not believe your lying eyes and ears, to reinterpret the Constitution, and to believe 
that if the president thinks his reelection is in our national interest, then he can do whatever he wants, anything, to make it happen. And that's exactly what he was attempting to do anything when he illegally held much-needed military aid while pressuring Ukraine's president to announce bogus investigations into his most feared political rival. This trial is about abuse of power, obstruction, breaking the law, and our system of checks and balances. And since we are talking about the President of the United States, this trial is also most certainly about character. I'm reminded today, Senators, of my own father. He worked more than one job. He didn't have a famous last name. His name appeared on no buildings. But my father was rich in something no money and apparently no powerful position can buy. You see, my father was a man who was decent, honest, a man of integrity. And he was a man of good moral character. The president's lawyer never spoke about the president's character during this trial. And I find that quite telling. I joined the police department because I wanted to make a difference. And I believe I did. As a police chief, I was always concerned about the message we were sending inside the agency, especially to young recruits, especially to newly hired, dedicated police officers. We had to be careful about just how we were defining what was acceptable and unacceptable behavior inside the department and out in the community. Yes, people make mistakes. Yes, individuals make mistakes. But we had to be clear about the culture inside the organization. And we had to send a strong message that the police department was not a place where corruption could reside, where corruption was normalized, and where corruption was covered up. Today, unfortunately, I believe we are holding young police recruits to a higher standard than we are the leader of the free world. If this body fails to hold this president accountable, you must ask yourselves, what kind of republic will we ultimately have with a president who thinks that he can really, truly do whatever he wants? You will send a terrible message to the nation that one can get away with abuse of power, obstruction, cheating, and spreading false narratives if you simply know the right people. 
Well, today, senators, I reject that because we are a nation of laws. Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States, said this, America will never be destroyed from outside. If we falter and lose our freedoms, it will be because we chose to destroy ourselves. I urge you, senators, to vote to convict and remove this president. Thank you so much for your time. Mr. Chief Justice, distinguished members of the Senate, President's Council. I mentioned on the floor last week that Alexander Hamilton has played a starring role during this impeachment trial, but Ben Franklin has only made a cameo appearance. But that cameo appearance was an important one. When he made the observation in the aftermath of that convention, in 1787, that the framers of the Constitution had created a republic if you can keep it. Why would Dr. Franklin express ambiguity about the future of America during such a triumphant moment? Perhaps it was because the system of government that was created at that convention checks and balances separate and co-equal branches of government, the independent judiciary, the free and fair press, the preeminence of the rule of law, all of those values, all of those ideas, all of those institutions had never before been put together in one form of government. So perhaps it was uncertain as to whether America could sustain it. But part of the brilliance of our great country is that year after year, decade after decade, century after century, we've held this democracy thing together. But now, all of those ideas, all of those values, all of those institutions are under assault, not from without, but from within. We've created a republic if you can keep it. House managers have proven our case against President Trump with a mountain of evidence. President Trump tried to cheat, he got caught, and then he worked hard to cover it up. President Trump corruptly abused his power. President Trump obstructed a congressionally and constitutionally required impeachment inquiry with blanket defiance. President Trump solicited foreign interference in an American election and shredded the very fabric of our democracy. House managers have proven our case against President Trump with a mountain of evidence. If the Senate chooses to acquit, under these circumstances, then America is in the wilderness. If the Senate chooses to normalize lawlessness, 
If the Senate chooses to normalize corruption, if the Senate chooses to normalize presidential abuse of power, then America is in the wilderness. If the Senate chooses to acquit President Trump without issuing a single subpoena, without interviewing a single witness, without reviewing a single new document, then America is truly in the wilderness. But all is not lost. Even at this late hour, the Senate can still do the right thing. America is watching. The world is watching. The eyes of history are watching. The Senate can still do the right thing. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter and the seventh verse, encourages us to walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We've come this far by faith. And so I say to all of you, my fellow Americans, walk by faith. Democrats and Republicans, progressives and conservatives, the left and the right, all points in between, walk by faith. There are patriots all throughout this chamber, patriots who can be found all throughout the land, in urban America, rural America, suburban America, small town America, walk by faith. Through the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, the peaks and the valleys, the trials and the tribulations of this turbulent moment, Walk by faith. Faith in the Constitution. Faith in our democracy. Faith in the rule of law. Faith in government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Faith in Almighty God. Walk by faith. The Senate can still do the right thing. And if we come together as Americans, then together we can eradicate the cancer that threatens our democracy and continue our long, necessary, and majestic march toward a more perfect union. Mr. Chief Justice, uh, I want to begin by thanking you for the distinguished way you have presided over these proceedings. Senators, we are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. If Lincoln could speak these words during the Civil War, surely we can live them now and overcome our divisions and our animosities. It is midnight in Washington. The lights are finally going out in the Capitol after a long day in the impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump. The Senate heard arguments only hours earlier on whether to call witnesses and require the administration to release documents it has withheld. Counsel for the President still maintains the President's innocence while opposing any additional evidence that would prove otherwise. It is midnight in Washington. But on this night, not all the lights have been extinguished. Somewhere in the bowels of the Justice Department, Donald Trump's Justice Department, a light remains on. 
Someone has waited until the country is asleep to hit send to inform the court in a filing due that day that the Justice Department, the department that would represent justice, is refusing to produce documents directly bearing on the President's decision to withhold military aid from Ukraine. The Trump administration has them, it is not turning them over, and it does not want the Senate to know until it is too late. Send. That's what happened last Friday night when you left home for the weekend in a replay of the duplicity we saw during the trial when the President's lawyers argued here that the House must go to court and argued in court that the House must come here, they were at it again, telling the court in a midnight filing that it would not turn over relevant documents even as they argued here that they were not covering up the President's misdeeds. Midnight in Washington. All too tragic, a metaphor for where the country finds itself at the conclusion of the only the third impeachment in history and the first impeachment trial without witnesses or documents, the first such trial or non-trial in impeachment history. How did we get here? In the beginning of this proceeding, you did not know whether we could prove our case. Many senators, like many Americans, did not have the opportunity to watch much, let alone all, of the open hearings in the House during our investigation. And none of us could anticipate what defenses the President might offer. Now you have seen what we promised, overwhelming evidence of the President's guilt. Donald John Trump withheld hundreds of millions of dollars to an ally at war and a coveted White House meeting with their President to coerce or extort that nation's help to cheat in our elections. And when he was found out, he engaged in the most comprehensive effort to cover up his misconduct in the history of presidential impeachment, fighting all subpoenas for documents and witnesses, and using his own obstruction as a sword and a shield. Arguing here, the House did not fight hard enough to overcome their non-invocation of privilege in court, and in court that the House must not be heard to enforce their subpoenas, but that impeachment is a proper remedy. Having failed to persuade this Senate or the public that there was no quid pro quo, having offered no evidence to contradict the record, the President's team opted in a kind of desperation for a different kind of defense. First, prevent the Senate and the public from hearing from witnesses with the most damning accounts of the President's misconduct. And second, fall back on a theory of presidential power so broad and unaccountable that it would allow any occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania to be as corrupt as he chooses while the Congress is powerless to do anything about it. That defense collapsed of its own dead weight. Presidents may abuse their power with impunity, they argued. Abuse of power is not a constitutional crime, they claimed. Only statutory crime is a constitutional crime, even though there were no statutory crimes when the Constitution was adopted. The President had to look far and wide to find a de defense lawyer to make such an argument, unsupported by history, the founders, or common sense. The Republican expert witness in the House would not make it. Serious constitutional scholars would not make it. Even Alan Dershowitz would not make it. At least he wouldn't in 1998. But this has become the President's defense. And yet, this defense proved indefensible. 
If abuse of power is not impeachable, even though it is clear the founders considered the highest of all high crimes and misdemeanors, but if it were not impeachable, then a whole range of utterly unacceptable conduct in a president would now be beyond reach. Trump could offer Alaska to the Russians in exchange for support in the next election, or decide to move to Mar-a-Lago permanently and let Jared Kushner run the country, delegating to him the decision whether to go to war. Because those things are not necessarily criminal, this argument would allow that he could not be impeached for such abuses of power. Of course, this would be absurd. More than absurd, it would be dangerous. And so Mr. Dershowitz tried to embellish his legal creation and distinguish among those abuses of power which would be impeachable from those which wouldn't. Abuses of power that would help the president get reelected were permissible and therefore unimpeachable and only those for pecuniary gain were beyond the pale. Under this theory, as long as the president believed his reelection was in the public interest, he could do anything, and no quid pro quo was too corrupt. No damage to our national security too great. This was such an extreme view that even the president's other lawyers had to run away from it. So what are we left with? The House has proven the president's guilt. He tried to coerce an ally into helping him cheat by smearing his opponent. He betrayed our national security in order to do it when he withheld military aid to our ally and violated the law to do so. He covered it up, and he covers it up still. His continuing obstruction is a threat to the oversight and investigatory powers of the House and Senate, and if left unaddressed, will permanently and dangerously alter the balance of power. These undeniable facts required the president to retreat to his final defense. He's guilty as sin, but can't we just let the voters decide? He's guilty as sin, but why not let the voters clean up this mess? And here, to answer that question, we must look at the history of this presidency and to the character of this president or lack of character and ask, can we be confident that he will not continue to try to cheat in that very election? Can we be confident that Americans and not foreign powers will get to decide and that the president will shun any further foreign interference in our democratic affairs? And the short, plain, sad, incontestable answer is no, you can't. You can't trust this president to do the right thing, not for one minute, not for one election, not for the sake of our country. You just can't. He will not change, and you know it. In 2016, he invited foreign interference in our election. Hey, Russia, if you're listening, hack Hillary's emails, he said, and they did, immediately. And when the Russians started dumping them before the election, he made use of them in every conceivable way, touting the filthy lucre at campaign stops more than a hundred times. When he was investigated, he did everything he could to obstruct justice, going so far as to fire the FBI director and try to fire the special counsel and ask the White House counsel to lie on his behalf. During the same campaign, while telling the country he had no business dealings with Russia, he was continuing to actively pursue the most lucrative deal of his life, a Trump Tower in the heart of Moscow. 
Six close associates of the president would be indicted or go to jail in connection with the president's campaign, Russia, and the effort to cover it up. On the day after that tragic chapter appeared to come to an end with Bob Mueller's testimony, Donald Trump was back on the phone, this time with another foreign power, Ukraine, and once again seeking foreign help with his election. Only this time, he had the full powers of the presidency at his disposal. This time, he could use coercion. This time, he could withhold aid from a nation whose soldiers were dying every week. This time, he believed he could do whatever he wanted under Article 2. And this time, when he was caught, he could make sure that the Justice Department would never investigate the matter. And they didn't. Donald Trump had no more Jeff Sessions. He had just the man he wanted in Bill Barr, a man whose view of the imperial presidency, a presidency in which the Department of Justice is little more than an extension of the White House counsel, is to do the president's bidding. So Congress had to do the investigation itself. And just as before, he obstructed that investigation in every way. He has not changed. He will not change. He has made that clear himself without self-awareness or hesitation. A man without character or ethical compass will never find his way. Even as the most recent and most egregious misconduct was discovered, he was unapologetic, unrepented, and more dangerous, undeterred. He continued pressing Ukraine to smear his rivals even as the investigation was underway. He invited new countries to get involved in the act calling on China to do the same. His personal emissary, Rudy Giuliani, dispatched himself to Ukraine, trying to get further foreign interference in our election. The plot goes on, the scheming persists, and the danger will never recede. He has done it before, he will do it again. What are the odds, if left in office, that he will continue trying to cheat? I will tell you, 100%. Not five, not 10, or even 50, but 100%. If you have found him guilty and you do not remove him from office, he will continue trying to cheat in the election until he succeeds. Then what shall you say? What shall you say if Russia again interferes in our election and Donald Trump does nothing but celebrate their efforts? What shall you say if Ukraine capitulates and announces investigations into the president's rivals? What shall you say in future when candidates compete for the allegiance of foreign powers in their elections, when they draft their platforms so to encourage foreign intervention in their campaign, foreign nations as the most super of super PACs of them all, if not legal, somehow permissible, because Donald Trump has made it so, and we refuse to do anything about it, but wring our hands. They'll hack your opponent's emails. They'll mount a social media campaign to support you. They'll announce investigations of your opponent to help you, and all for the asking. Leave Donald Trump in office after you have found him guilty, and this is the future that you will invite. Now, we have known since the day we brought these charges that the bar to conviction requiring fully two-thirds of the Senate may be prohibitively high. 
And yet the alternative is a runaway presidency and a nation whose elections are open to the highest bidder. And so you might ask how, given the gravity of the president's misconduct, given the abundance of evidence of his guilt, given the acknowledgement by senators in both parties of that guilt, how have we arrived here with so little common ground? Why was the Nixon impeachment bipartisan? Why was the Clinton impeachment much less so? And why is the gulf between the parties even greater today? It is not for the reason the president's lawyers would have you believe. Although they have claimed many times in many ways that the process in the House was flawed because we did not allow the president to control it, it was in reality little different than the process in prior impeachments. The circumstances, of course, were different. The Watergate investigation began in the Senate and it progressed before it got moving in the House. And there, of course, much of the investigative work had been done by the special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski. In Clinton, there was likewise an independent counsel that conducted a multi-year investigation that started with a real estate deal in Arkansas and ended with a blue dress. Nixon and Clinton, of course, played no role in those investigations before they moved to the House Judiciary Committee. But to the degree you can compare the process when it got to the Judiciary Committee in either prior and recent impeachments, it was largely the same as we have here. The president had the right to call witnesses, to ask questions, and chose not to. The House majorities in Nixon and Clinton did not cede their subpoena power to their minorities, and neither did we here. Although then, as now, we gave the minority the right to request subpoenas and to compel a vote, and they did. So the due process the House presided here, provided here was essentially the same and in some ways even greater. Nevertheless, the President's counsel hopes that through sheer repetition, they can convert non-truth into truth. Do not let them. Every single court to hear Mr. Philbin's arguments has rejected them. The subpoenas are invalid, rejected by the McGahn court. They have absolute immunity, rejected by the McGahn court. Privilege may conceal crime or fraud, rejected by the court in Nixon. But if the process here was substantially the same, the facts of the president's misconduct were very different from one impeachment to the next. The Republican Party of Nixon's time broke into the DNC, and the president covered it up. Nixon, too, abused the power of his office to gain an unfair advantage over his opponent. But in Watergate, he never sought to coerce a foreign power to aid his reelection, nor did he sacrifice our national security in such a palpable and destructive way as withholding aid from an ally at war. And he certainly did not engage in the wholesale obstruction of Congress or justice that we have seen this president commit. The facts of the President Clinton's misconduct pale in comparison to Nixon and do not hold a candle to Donald Trump. Lying about an affair is morally wrong and when under oath it is a crime, but it had nothing to do with his duties in office. The process being the same, the facts of President Trump's misconduct being far more destructive than either past president, what then accounts for the disparate result in bipartisan support for his removal. What has changed? The short answer is 
We have changed. The members of Congress have changed. For reasons as varied as the stars, the members of this body and ours in the House are now far more accepting of the most serious misconduct of a president as long as it is a president of one's own party. And that is a trend most dangerous for our country. Fifty years ago, no lawyer representing the president would have ever made the outlandish argument that if the president believes his corruption will serve to get him reelected, whether it is by coercing an ally to help him cheat or in any other form that he may not be impeached, that this is somehow a permissible use of his power. But here we are. The argument has been made, and some appear ready to accept it, and that is dangerous, for there is no limiting principle to that position. It must have come as a shock, a pleasant shock, to this president that our norms and institutions would prove to be so weak. The independence of the Justice Department and its formerly proud Office of Legal Counsel, now mere legal tools at the president's disposal, to investigate enemies or churn out helpful opinions not worth the paper they are written on. The FBI painted by a president as corrupt and disloyal. The intelligence community not to be trusted against the good counsel of Vladimir Putin. The press portrayed as enemies of the people. The daily attacks on the guardrails of our democracy so relentlessly assailed have made us numb and blind to the consequences. Does none of that matter anymore if he's the president of our party? I hope and pray that we never have a president like Donald Trump in the Democratic Party, one that would betray the national interest and the country's security to help with his reelection. And I would hope to God that if we did, we would impeach him and Democrats would lead the way. But I suppose you never know just how difficult that is until you are confronted with it. But you, my friends, are confronted with it. You are confronted with that difficulty now, and you must not shrink from it. History will not be kind to Donald Trump. I think we all know that. Not because it will be written by never-Trumpers, but because whenever we have departed from the values of our nation, we have come to regret it, and that regret is written all over the pages of our history. If you find that the House has proved its case, and still vote to acquit, your name will be tied to his with a cord of steel and for all of history. But if you find the courage to stand up to him, to speak the awful truth to his rank falsehood, your place will be among the Davids who took on Goliath. If only you will say enough. We revere the wisdom of our founders and the insights they had into self-governance. We scour their words for hidden meaning and try to place ourselves in their shoes. But we have one advantage that the founders did not. For all their genius, they could not see but opaquely into the future. We, on the other hand, have the advantage of time, of seeing how their great experiment in self-governance has progressed. When we look at the sweep of history, there are times when our nation and the rest of the world 
have moved with a seemingly irresistible force in the direction of greater freedom, more freedom to speak and to assemble, to practice our faith and tolerate the faith of others, to love whom we would and choose love over hate, more free societies, walls tumbling down, nations reborn. But then, like a pendulum approaching the end of its arc, the outward movement begins to arrest. The golden globe of freedom reaches its zenith and starts to retreat. The pendulum swings back past the center and recedes into a dark unknown. How much farther it will travel in its illiberal direction, how many more freedoms will be extinguished before it turns back, we cannot say. But what we do here, in this moment, will affect its course and its correction. Every single vote, even a single vote by a single member, can change the course of history. It is said that a single man or woman of courage makes a majority. Is there one among you who will say, enough? America believes in a thing called truth. She does not believe we are entitled to our own alternate facts. She recoils at those who spread pernicious falsehoods. To her, truth matters. There is nothing more corrosive to a democracy than the idea that there is no truth. America also believes there is a difference between right and wrong, and right matters here. But there is more. Truth matters, right matters, but so does decency. Decency matters. When the president smears a patriotic public servant like Marie Ivanovich in pursuit of a corrupt aim, we recoil. When the president mocks the disabled, a war hero who is a prisoner of war, or a gold star father, we are appalled because decency matters here. And when the president tries to coerce an ally to help him cheat in our elections and then covers it up, we must say, enough, enough. He has betrayed our national security, and he will do so again. He has compromised our elections, and he will do so again. You will not change him. You cannot constrain him. He is who he is. Truth matters little to him. What's right matters even less, and decency matters not at all. I do not ask you to convict him because truth or right or decency matters nothing to him, but because we have proven our case and it matters to you. Truth matters to you. Right matters to you. You are decent. He is not who you are. In Federalist 55, James Madison wrote that there were certain qualities in human nature, qualities I believe like honesty, right, and decency, which should justify our confidence in self-government. He believed that we possessed sufficient virtue, that the chains of despotism were not necessary to restrain ourselves from destroying and devouring one another. It may be midnight in Washington, but the sun will rise again. I put my faith in the optimism of the founders. You should too. They gave us the tools to do the job, a remedy as powerful as the evil it was meant to constrain, impeachment. They meant it to be used rarely, 
but they put it in the Constitution for a reason. For a man who would sell out his country for a political favor. For a man who would threaten the integrity of our elections. For a man who would invite foreign interference in our affairs. For a man who would undermine our national security and that of our allies. For a man like Donald J. Trump. They gave you a remedy and they meant for you to use it. They gave you an oath and they meant for you to observe it. We have proven Donald Trump guilty. Now do impartial justice and convict him. I yield back. The majority leader is recognized. Mr. Chief Justice, I ask unanimous consent. The Senate sitting in a, as a court, court of impeachment stand adjourned under the previous order. Without objection, so ordered. I suggest the absence of a quorum.